The following episode is about race and contains language that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. My grandmother struggled with the fact that, and she even asked my mother soon after uh, they moved in with us. You know, she, my mother was really frustrated because she was seeing all the racism where, I mean, people, she would go into the hair salon and they would refuse to cut her hair because I was with her. Or we went one time to get family photos and the photographer turned to my mother and asked my mother if she wanted the welfare baby in the picture. Welcome to episode two of Conversations with me, James Shannon. Today's guest and I have a couple of things in common. We are both black. We were both adopted, but I was adopted by my grandmother and he was adopted by white people. I first heard Kevin's story when we both appeared on the Cultural Marauders podcast. Now, I want you to understand that we are both black men and there are points in this conversation where we talk like we're in a barbershop. It's a great way to see how Kevin views the world from his perspective. He is a person of color that was raised by a white family. And today you get to hear how it has impacted him. He even wrote a book on his experiences. And now he speaks to people all over the United States sharing his story. He was kind enough to share that experience with us today. This is my conversation with Kevin Hoffman. In a 2007 report by the National Survey of Adoptive Parents, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services found that 40% of children adopted by Americans are of a different race than their adoptive parents. 40%. Today's guest travels around the country discussing transracial adoption with various groups. Kevin Hoffman is the author of Growing Up Black and White, which is available on Amazon, Kindle, Audible, and iTunes right now. Kevin, thanks for agreeing to have a conversation with me today. Hey, thanks for having me. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. Awesome, awesome. I usually ask people about where they grew up, but to understand your story, we need to know what happened before you were born. Can you tell us about your dad? Pee-wee, right? Yeah, so his nickname was Pee-wee. So I am the result of an affair between a black woman or black man and white woman in the late 60s. They worked together in one of the plants in the Detroit area. And they were happily married just to two different people. And so at my white mother's insistence that uh, they give me up for adoption immediately. And so I was adopted. I went into foster care straight from the hospital and then was adopted by a white family when I was three months old. And I was born two weeks after the riots in Detroit. Yeah, I was this biracial kid that was born into a city that Literally, the races were at each other's throats when I came out. So it's like both parts of you are in a beef with each other at the same time. That's crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And everything around me, yeah, everybody was. And that's part of Detroit's interesting history is just that many have said Detroit has never, you know, has changed from that, from those riots. And Detroit is to this day is very segregated. There are very few, if any diverse communities. There are white communities, black communities, Muslim communities, but there's not a whole lot of inclusion and diversity in a lot of those. 
So your adoption pretty much it was planned before you were born. Is is that what you meant? Um, kind of in your bio, you said that you survived an abortion. Is is that what you were talking about? No. So back in 2009, I was searching for my biological mother and I came across an ant. So I went to go visit the ant. I live in Toledo, was born in the Detroit area, which is 60 miles north of me. So I went up to the Plymouth Canton area just outside Detroit and sat down with my aunt Nancy, so my mother's sister. And she shared with me that early 1967, when my mother found out she was pregnant, she came to Nancy and uh, asked for a loan. And she knew that if she was going to ask for this loan, she was going to have to give her sister, she's going to have to put down information as far as collateral for this loan. She sits down at Nancy's small uh, mobile home kitchen table over coffee, and she asks her sister for money. And initially, her sister asked, of course, well, what do you need the money for? And my mother said, well, I'm pregnant. And with our last child, my daughter, my husband told me he didn't want any more kids. And so Nancy's, my aunt's response to that was, well, you know, Louie, your husband isn't that bright, you know, and he knows where kids come from. You didn't get pregnant alone. You know, it's his responsibility too. And to that, my mother was thinking, man, now I've got to tell my sister more information. Right. And so she said, well, the child isn't Louie's. And the sister still insisted, just tell Louie it's his. He'll never know. And then finally, my mother had to say, you know, which was, I'm sure, very shameful back in the late 60s was she'd gotten pregnant, you know, from an affair with a black man. That's a whole lot of bad. Ain't it? I think once she told her sister all that, the sister understood. And the sister disappeared into the back of the mobile home, came back out, grabbed Helen's hands and put the money in Helen's hands. And it was Helen's intention to leave that home and travel the 60 miles to Flint, Michigan to have an abortion. I've never met my mother, so I don't know what happened during that 60 mile ride, but somewhere between the first minute or the 59th minute, I don't know. She changed her mind, chose to go back home and admit to her husband that she had an affair with a black man. And you have to understand that back in the late 60s, if he chose to get violent against her because she had an affair, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of people running to her aid. Especially because it was a black child in her, right? Yeah, especially because it was a black man. And so... Yeah, I give her a lot of credit for having to go and have that ho horribly uncomfortable conversation with her husband and really not knowing how he would respond. And so his response was, you have to give the child up for adoption, which she did. So the last name Hoffman comes from your adoptive family. Yes. Wow. So that's a lot before you're even born. And then after you get with your new family, you wake up to a burning cross. Was that for you? Yeah, so I was adopted at three months old, like I said, by a white minister, his wife, and their two sons and a daughter. So I'm the youngest of the four kids in our adoptive family and the only child of color. Yeah, when I was 11 months old, we woke up. We lived in Dearborn, which is a, at that time was a white suburb of Detroit and was happily white. So, and if you look back, 
uh, the mayor of Dearborn at that time, Mayor Hubbard, part of his legacy is that he was just a straight racist. And so he wanted Dearborn to stay white. He didn't want people of color coming into his city, especially to live. And so soon after I came into that city, not only into that neighborhood, but also into the church that my father was a part of, yeah, the whole community responded and in not a good way. And so part of that response was us waking up to this six foot high cross burning in our yard in the summer of 1968. Whoa, that's crazy. Quite, quite honestly, I can't tell you if it was someone from the community. It could have been someone from the church we belonged to. I mean, the church responded horribly about, you know, my father bringing in this child of color into the church. So if they're getting this kind of a response, I have to ask, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer, but how come they didn't just get rid of you? I'm sure there's people in their ear saying, get rid of this black boy. Yeah. And I think, so what you're talking about in the adoption field, it's called uh, a disrupted adoption. And they just weren't happening in the sixties. That wasn't even a consideration for most people who adopted. Now today, yeah, that happens all the time. Mm. Kids do get returned, but I was fortunate where the part of that community was, no, you adopt the child and keep them. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I grew up, our society's become more and more disposable. And I, you know, I actually, my wife and I, we uh, were raising a young lady that that happened to. She was, her adoption was disrupted and she was pretty much given away by her adopted parents. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was for that didn't happen. It forced my parents to make some changes that I don't think had crossed their mind when they initially adopted me. So we lived in that white community for three years. And my parents finally, I think, decided this community is going to change us before we change it. And so they decided, which was life changing for me. My father took a church in the Detroit area and the home that we lived in that was owned by the church was in a black neighborhood. So from age three to 18, I was always around kids that looked like me, which was life changing. But how did the rest of the family react to that? Your siblings or or even your grandmother? I, I heard some things about her. Yeah. So my I have two brothers and a sister. My brothers really struggled. It's just part of human nature. The majority always takes <laughs> really relishes in attacking the minority. So my brothers were the minority in that black neighborhood. So I can remember several times, especially my one brother, he'd be chased home by the black kids. And so, yeah, it was tough for them. Now, my sister was a little older. She was female. And the guys didn't pick on her as much. So she fared fine there. But my, yeah, I think my brothers really struggled in that neighborhood. And then the schools we went to, because of the riots and the way Detroit had changed so quickly in the late 60s and 70s, I mean, white people were just leaving the city in droves. And so those schools that we went to were you know, 95, 98% black up until I graduated from high school. So they were the minorities at school, too. And that was tough for them. I think they, to this day, I think our family has kind of split. And I think it has a lot to do with that resentment that they were forced to live a life they may not have wanted to live. And they blame you, maybe? Yeah, I think they're just really frustrated. You know, I have the advantage of getting to go and speak all over the country about this. So it's great for me because it's, you know, therapy I get paid for. And I just don't think they've 
had the time to kind of look at everything and kind of digest what happened and their response to it. So, and we don't talk. I don't know where their head's at. I can only assume the obvious, which is, you know, they're just kind of resentful because of the way they grew up. Now, my sister, she's fine. My sister grew up, married a black guy. Really? Yeah. Has a biracial child. They got divorced and she married another black guy. Oh, so two black guys. Okay. Okay. That's. Once you go black. Yeah. You never go back. <laughs> you know? So your, your grandmother, how does she feel about a black baby coming to the family? Yeah. So my grandmother, in her head, she thought she was kind of this socialite. They also lived in Deer or in Detroit. My grandfather used to manage plants. So he would, you know, in the factories and he would go and manage crews. But he had a drinking problem. So he would keep a job for a minute and then get fired. And that's what happened with he worked for the Bud plant in Detroit. Well, he got caught drinking, got fired, found a job in India, managing a foundry there. All about the same time my mother and father were going through the adoption process. So that was early 1967. In November 1967, I'm adopted by my mother and father. At about the same time, my grandfather gets fired from the job in India. And so his plan is to come back and live with us, with our family. But they have no idea that their daughter has adopted this child of color. So the first time they found that out was when my mother placed me in my grandmother's arms. And all my grandmother said was, well, he looks like a little Indian baby because she was straight from India. <laughs> right. And she handed me to my grandfather who said, yeah, he does. And that's all they said. And so that began this very just, which at that point ended with my father having to kick out, kick my grandmother and grandfather out. My grandmother struggled with the fact that and she even asked my mother soon after uh, they moved in with us. You know, she, my mother was really frustrated because she was seeing all the racism where, I mean, people, she would go into the hair salon and they would refuse to cut her hair because I was with her. Or we went one time to get family photos and the photographer turned to my mother and asked my mother if she wanted the welfare baby in the picture. The welfare baby. Yeah, which was me. So they kept getting this horrible response from the community. And uh, when my mother went to my grandmother, just heartbroken with how everybody was really just kind of turning against her, including friends. And my grandmother just said, well, what did you think would happen? And what do you think my friends are going to think? And so that she really struggled with that. And I think in her head, she conceptualized it as, well, he's not really black. And I think that's how she lived with it. Didn't accept that until she was on her deathbed and I went to go visit her and I was in my thirties and she woke up, she was in and out of consciousness and she woke up and she looked me right in my eye and said, you know what? You're okay. It totally went over my head. <laughs> on the way home, my wife said, do you realize what she was saying? She finally come to grips with the fact that you were her grandson. Wow. And it took all her life. So then when you were eight, I read that you used to take a bus ride to a farm, right? You were the only person of color at the farm. Did you feel like an outcast? Yeah, and that was the thing. So they had these programs. They, they might still have them today. They're usually out west. They're called clean air programs. And basically the concept is 
these programs come into the inner city and take these kids out of the inner city and take them to like farms and open lands so that they can experience life differently. And so my mom had found this program where during the summers, we would go to this day camp that was at a farm for, you know, inner city kids. Well, no other black families got the memo. So I was the only black kid in this camp. And man, I just hated it. I didn't like the farm. I didn't like the smells. I didn't like the bus ride there. It was like an hour bus ride there and back. It was hot. It was just horrible. Yeah, and that was the first time I remember that someone treated me different solely based on the fact of my skin color. So every day we would do these activities around the farm. And this day we were, they were giving these rides. So they'd strap this cart to a donkey and we would ride around this circle in this cart. So I was doing this and I mistakenly stepped in front of this chubby white kid. And to that point, I think I had thought, yeah, everyone had kind of let me know that all I had to do was pretty much, I was this small kid. And that if I had just smiled, it would get me out of a lot of stuff. And so, like I said, I mistakenly took cuts in front of this kid and he just looked at me. He didn't say anything. But the look that he gave me, I mean, he called me a nigger without saying a word. That the simple fact that the way he looked at me made me feel like, and he convinced me that he was better. Did your parents ever have that conversation about race relations when you were a child? No, we, we didn't talk about adoption or race. And it wasn't by design. I think my parents thought when he's comfortable, he'll come talk to us. That just wasn't a good strategy because, I mean, no one was talking about it. So. Whenever you're in an environment and people aren't talking about obvious things, the message is sent that obviously we're not to talk about this. So I didn't talk about it. So it was incidents like that or the first time, you know, this little white kid called me a nigger. I never shared that with my parents. And that kind of led, that did add to, you know, kind of the trauma that came from that. And that I just kind of swallowed it and accepted that those kids were right, that they were better than me. And it took me decades to get over that, where I had to finally say, you know what? Yeah, I am. I'm just as good, if not better. So having to live with that for decades and all the other stuff that you just shared, is that what led you to writing Growing Up Black and White? Yeah, it was. I thought it was just this interesting story. I mean, not everybody grew up in a household, you know, with a family of a different race. So I thought, wow, this is an interesting story. And initially, I wrote it for two reasons. I wanted to just share that experience, but I also, it was very important for me to share the experience of me as this child of color growing up in America and how I saw race impact my life. And so that became the broader message of the book, which was this could also be a book that teaches people who aren't black or of color, just what our experience is like growing up in the world today. And so that was really the push behind it. I knew I had to write the story in a way that people would listen. And so that was, that was the point is to kind of tell these stories and oftentimes are funny, but then also give them the lesson that I learned from that story. And so, yeah, that's why I wrote the book. And now I use it to just open up that conversation of race, racism, diversity, inclusion. So I do a lot of training with, schools and organizations you also tell white people that are raising black kids to go into a black barbershop right 
yeah, if you've never been to a black barbershop shop, it's just, it's an amazing experience. I mean, it's, that's the place, especially where black men can go and just be. And we have great conversations about how the world impacts us. And we, you just get to hear from people who experience the world as you do. And I think that's important for white parents to see. One, it's important for them, if they're raising a child of color, to be put in the position where they are the minority so that they can understand what it's like for the children of color every day. And that's important. Yeah, when I saw that at first, I was like, Kevin, why would you tell them that? Then I thought, you know what? That's cool. Because anytime that I'm in a shop and somebody of a different race comes in, I'm like, whoa, do you know what? Exactly. This is a different environment. It's not like. And yeah, and I've had that too, where, yeah, my barbershop, he'll cut. Like back in the day, this never happened, but it's happened more and more recently where, yeah, white guys will come in. You know, the word gets out that the black barbers are a whole lot better. They can cut any hair where white barbers are really just trained to cut white hair. So the word has gotten out that, yeah, the black barbers, they got the skills. And so I've seen that more and more white people come in. But you're right. When they do come in, it does change that environment because you're not as free to say things that you would if they weren't there. But I think that's important. It's important for white people to walk into that environment and just get a feel as to what the life, what life is like for their children who have to experience that every day. While you were writing growing up black and white, did you learn anything while you were writing the book? Yeah, I learned a lot about my racial identity and how it was formed. One of the big issues that the black community has had with transracial adoption and basically transracial adoption for the most part is white families adopting children of color. And the black community came out strongly against it in the 70s. And their issue was that these white people were taking our kids out of our communities and not raising them to be confident children of color. And so there's always been this tension between those two communities. Yeah, there was, there's, there's issues with that. I was fortunate that my parents did it right, where they made sure I was always in touch with black culture and always in touch with people that look like me because my parents knew they couldn't teach me about culture that they didn't know. Right. I learned it. I studied it. I spent a lot of time watching my black friends because my biggest fear growing up was that my black friends would say I was a fraud or that I wasn't like them. And so I spent a lot of time studying black culture and just trying my best to fit in. Do you feel like you identify more with your black side or your white side? Yeah, I've always, and that's, I've done a lot of speaking. And so, yes, I identify as black, but that's ever evolving. Like I probably identify more biracially than I ever have in my life. But for the most part, I identify as black simply because two reasons. One, I didn't even know I was biracial until I was in my 20s. Two, there were no biracial communities when I was coming up. So I understood at an early age for my social survival, I was going to have to cling to the only community that would accept me as part of them. And that was the black community. The white community was, doesn't, they didn't see me as white. And so I, I couldn't just ask. So yes, I, I identify as black, very proud to be a part of the black community, really relish a lot about the black community. And I think I walked away with, you know, you asked me what did I learned from writing the book. It was, you know, my love for that community and the fact that I'm a part of that community and the sense of home that I get when I'm a part of that community. 
And do you, I mean, I know you dealt with the issues when you were A with the boy calling you a nigger. Do you still deal with racism today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's the one jab I got when I first started to speak was, you know, many people would say, well, that happened over 50 years ago. One, get over it. And two, uh, you know, it's not like that today. Well, I'm raising two boys, two children of color. And man, they've been called nigger more than I ever was. So it's still there. It's still a part of it's part of that fabric that we call the United States of America. It's part of our history. I first met you when we were guests on the Cultural Marauders podcast, and that's when I found out that you deal with a lot of children. Do you see a lot of racism with the kids now, too? Or like, has it gotten better since you were a kid, or is it worse? It's worse. It's worse. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, so I go into schools now, and one of the first things I do is ask the schools to set up focus groups so that I can go and talk to kids, because I want to hear from the minorities what their experience is like in the schools that I deal with are predominantly white. And so I want to hear from the minorities and that's just not only black kids, but it's kids from the LBGT community, Muslim children, Jewish kids. And we get them in a room and I just say, so what's it like? Give me, tell me about your experience here in this district. And man, they, they use words that I thought people don't even use anymore against each other. I mean, there's one community that I'm working with, and they have a, a growing Muslim population, and those kids get called terrorists on a daily basis. So, yes, it's bad. And I think this recent administration has given a lot of people the freedom and the courage to say whatever they want to say. And they do. So, yeah, they, kids can be horrible. <laughs> and so I'm working with schools to tell them, this is your campus, it's your school, you get to decide what behavior is acceptable and not. And you need to make that very clear. That That's sad. I always thought that it would get better, but to hear that it's getting worse. And when I talk to my own kids, they tell me stories and I'd be like, wow, you guys are. It's sad. Yeah. I, I hate to hear that. Has anybody in your family read your book? Yeah, it's funny. So... <laughs> For anybody listening that's considering on writing a memoir, understand this, because I have a good friend of mine, he also wrote a book and got the same reaction. Understand that when you write your story from your point of view, those that are part of that story may object because, of course, their experience is different because they're seeing it from different eyes. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote the book. It was going to the publisher on Monday. On Friday, I sent it out to my family. And I said, you know, read it over. If you've got issues with something, let me know. And what I found is that what everybody does is if you're in a book, so they go to the part of the book where they are, (laughs) thumb through it, and then only read the part that talks about them. And I think that's what a lot of people did. And so I sent it out on a Friday. That Saturday, I got a call from my sister. No, from my mother. And my mother asked me, well, did you ask your brothers what their experience was like? And I said, no, I didn't, because I wasn't writing from their viewpoint. I was writing from mine. Mm -hmm. And so I knew there was something behind her question. And so I went to my sister, who she's like the hub of the family. Everyone goes to her. So I went to her and I said, okay, tell me what's going on. I got this weird call from mom. And she said, 
yeah, your brother's taking exception because he doesn't think you adequately described his experience in the book. And I said, yeah, I didn't because I'm not talking about his experience. I'm talking about mine. If he wants that, tell him to go write his own book. And so, you know, after I was, I was kind of salty about that for a couple (laughs) of Yeah, I mean, I would too. And then I went back and I, I just changed one sentence in the book, which just simply says, I'm not naive enough to think that this experience was easy for my brothers. I'm sure it was, it was very difficult for them being the minority in a majority environment. So let's talk about the, the family in your home. You say you're raising the, your two boys. Well, first, your wife, is she black? Yeah, so I married my teller from my bank. And that was interesting too. So I grew up part of the black community. You know, it's interesting what you kind of gravitate to if you're part of, you know, a different community. So I was part of the black community and, you know, was always attracted to black women or black girls growing up. So, you know, always dated black women. The only time I didn't was when I was, I went to a, one of the biggest mistakes I made in college, I went to this very small liberal arts college, 1,100 students, only 13 of us were black. And that was really the only time, yeah, I dated white girls. And then as soon as I graduated, I went back to Detroit and started black girls again. There was just so much that went into dating women of a different color. And I, man, I, I just didn't have the energy or the desire to go through some of the challenges with that. And so I just, cho- and I just always thought black women were more attractive. And this is important to say, too, that was before the day when everyone was getting surgery now to look like black women. Like back in the day, that didn't happen. You know, when I was coming up, black women were just genetically built different. And so and actually the world's vision of beauty didn't really coincide with black women. But I always thought they were you know, beautiful. And now it's interesting that the world is finally catching up. And now all these people are getting all these surgeries to be like, to have certain things. The footer lips, the, the, the bigger hips. And, and that's interesting because when I was coming up, man, the black girls, you know, they were called fat and overweight. Now that's totally changed. I've had my, my fair share of, well, a lot of different races, but I remember this one white girl that I dated. And this was recently. This was like a couple of years ago. I was never able to go to her house. She was living with her parents. And one day she told me because her mom would never be okay with her having a black boyfriend. And I was like, well, then why are we doing this? We're too old for this shit. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I had that experience in college where I actually was involved on campus doing a bunch of stuff and the president. So there was a family or a parent board. And they were, it was made up of parents of kids that went to this college. And uh, these two parents who seemed really cool, they were the president of the parent board. And I met them. And then probably six months later, I met their daughter. And they were real cool with me until I started dating their daughter. And uh, I remember she called me over to her room in tears. And she said, I told my dad that we were dating and he just sat at the kitchen table and cried. And I was like, really, it ain't that scary. And then that was pretty much it for me in that relationship. I mean, she, she wanted to go to counseling at college. And I was like, we ain't married. I'm not going to like marriage counseling. So 
and I, just like you, I was like, you know, this nah, this isn't worth it. I'm not going through this headache. Yeah. So, what do you guys tell your your children about race? Oh, we talk about it all the time. Good. And that probably has to do with the fact that I didn't talk about it coming up with my family. So, and my, my wife, who's black, was raised by her black parents. They always talked about it, and so it's it's a natural conversation for us. We talk about it, joke about it. Yeah, we always talk about the impact of race. So I know that you talk to a lot of parents and a lot of people that are doing like transracial adoptions. Is this something that you see that is common that race is not talked about in white households compared to the amount that we talk about it in our households? Yeah, there was there was a study that came out in 2007 talking about race and racism. And it said that households of color black households or with people of color in it, they're three times more likely to talk about race than white households. And that's simply because you talk about what impacts you. And as a person of color, I can tell you I'm impacted by race on a daily basis. So we talk about it. And that was so peaceful for me growing up that I had the chance to be around other black kids because I just simply needed to go to them and say, man, this dude treat me wrong because I'm black. And I didn't want to debate it. I didn't want to discuss it. I just wanted somebody to hear me and go, yeah, you might be right. And that's what my black friends did. So that gave me a whole lot of peace to know I wasn't crazy. And that, yeah, there are people out there that do that. When you're going around and uh, you're speaking, is this what you, what you speak about? Is like, what is it that people can get when they, when they meet you or when they read your book or when they come to any event that you're at? So probably the biggest things are I'm going to share from my experience. I'm going to tell you how I experienced the world. And it's an interesting kind of dynamic being this person of color growing up in a white household. So I've gotten to see race from two different sides in a sense. And I'll be honest that because I grew up in a white family, there's something about that dynamic that just gives some people peace and they will hear me. So there are some people when I explain I grew up in a white household, I'm comfortable around white people, they are more apt to hear what I have to say about race and racism. And so I use that as the avenue to get in, tell some kind of funny stories, you know, about growing up, but then also tell the impact of race and racism. And then my hope is, especially when I'm working with schools and organizations, is we've got to come to a place where the kid with the Black Lives Matter t-shirt and the kid with the Make America Great Again hat can coexist. They don't have to like each other. They don't have to believe the way each other believes, but you've got to respect each other and give each other what I call three feet to be who you are. And so you can be over there, you know, worshiping who you choose to, dating who you choose to, and that really doesn't impact me. What I'm trying to do is get districts, school districts and organizations to see that, yeah, we can respect each other. We don't have to waste all this energy trying to convince each other to believe or think or worship as we do or vote as we do because you're never going to change people. No one's ever going to convince me not to be a Christian or that racism doesn't exist. So, yeah, we just got to understand we're going to think differently and that's okay. Like you say, you're not going to change my mind. I'm me every day. Um, I want to get your thoughts on the infamous N-word. Should it be used by blacks only, everyone, or no one? Blacks only. 
And so I get, so when I go into schools, the two biggest issues that get brought up are white kids touching black kids and how especially black parents despise that. And I totally understand. So I have to go in and explain the history behind that and why whites feel very, (laughs) very comfortable coming up and touching blacks. And there's a history behind that, that we were once your property. And so that has carried on to the fact where you feel very comfortable touching and grabbing what you think is yours. So even though that might not be your intention, that's how a lot of people of color interpret that action. So that's the one issue that we deal with in all schools, whether it be K through 12 or universities. Then the second issue is every time I go speak, someone will ask, how can black people get to use the N-word and we don't? And so my answer to that is because we as a community have overwhelmingly asked you not to. And if you consider yourself a logical and compassionate person, that should be enough. Don't use it. You can use the rest of the dictionary. I'm taking one word that I don't want you to use. And I said this on another podcast. I'm inserting my black privilege. The only thing I get with black privilege is I get control of that word. And you get control of the banks, (laughs) finance, (laughs) everything else. Get over the fact that I get to own this one word. Because that's all it is. It's one word. And you know what? We're not even the only ones. I tell people all the time, like, you hear females say, what's up, bitch? And I'm like, well, I can't call her a bitch. That is a very good point because I bring that up, too. So the LBGT community, they can call each other stuff that I never would. Yeah. The Hispanic does it. Women do it. It's a cultural thing. It's not, we're not the only culture that does that. But we're the only culture that loudly has said, don't use it. Yeah. We put restrictions on your freedom. Man, does that get a lot of people bent out of shape. And when you break it down, I did this. On a, I did a radio show out of uh, Atlanta not too long ago. And that question came up. Good guy. Uh, it was a radio show called Awaken Atlanta. And the host, real cool white dude, really like him, Tim. And he asked, you know, how come I can't use that word? And I had a dictionary on my desk and I took out the dictionary and I said, look, 400 and some pages in the dictionary, about halfway through is the word nigger. And I tore that page out of the dictionary and I said, I'm taking this page. You can have the rest. You can have the other 420 pages. That's all I'm at. I'm just asking for one word. And it shouldn't be that hard. That word is so important in your life that you get so bent out of shape because you can't use it. There's bigger issues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As I got to say, why do you want to say it anyways? Why are we even having this conversation? Do you want to say nigga to me? Yeah, 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 that's it. And then the other thing I'll tell them too is, you know, I grew up in Detroit. Eminem's from Detroit. Eminem, who probably could get away with it, knows enough not to. That should yeah. tell you something. So what advice would you give white parents today that are raising black children or any parents that are raising kids um, that are are going through a transracial adoption? See color. I can't tell you how many times, almost every time I go train 
transracial parents, I get, well, I don't see color. He's just my kid. That would be great if you could keep that child locked up in your house for the rest of their life, but you can't. The moment they step outside your door, they are seen as a child of color and will be treated as so. And if you don't teach them what that means, they will walk away from a lot of those interactions as I did, which is, man, I must be less than that person. And so you have to teach them that yes, race will impact you. There are some people out there that think they're better than you simply because their skin is different than yours. That is not true. Different doesn't mean better. And then I really encourage parents to embrace race. You know, talk about race. Talk about the beauty of your child's skin and their hair. Because you're in a race against time with society. Society has set up all these systems that do a wonderful job of telling people of color and women that you're not good enough. And so your job as a parent raising a child of color is you've got to put in them that they are that they are good enough. And you're in a race because, man, we, every day I turn on the TV, there's messages that are built in to tell me that I'm not worthy. And so that's what I tell parents, man, celebrate the fact that they're different. Let them know that, yeah, their race, their, the, skull, the color of their skin is powerful. And that's a good thing. And that's what I got from those black kids early on was they showed me that there was something really special about being a person of color. And so I never, and there, that's an issue in the transracial community sometimes is, so the black child that is raised by a white family sometimes will walk away hoping and wishing that they weren't black. And that was never my experience. I always wanted to be part of that group. And that's simply because my parents exposed me to people like me. And I saw them as my superhero. So I wanted to be like them. I love what you're doing, you know, and you keep on doing it. It's not too many people that has that have had your experience to be a person of color and raised in a white household and can share experiences from both sides. So that is amazing. Um, that reminds me, what do you think? Do you remember a couple of years ago there was um, the white woman? Yes. The two white women, they adopted uh, like four or five black kids and killed them all. I don't remember the whole story. I just remember it was two white women that adopted some black kids. Uh, there's, you can search this. If you go online, when we were having all these issues about, well, when they blew up on social media with Eric Garner was killed for selling cigarettes. Michael Douglas was killed. So all these black guys were being killed and broadcast on social media. And it seemed like this was just blowing up. It wasn't. It was just the fact that people were catching it on video. Well, when all that was going on, there's this picture of this little black boy embracing a police officer. And he has right, this. I remember that. That's the, that kid was part of that family that was later killed. He was? Yes. And that was kind of orchestrated by his white mother. Wow. So I did not know that. And then not long after that, yeah, she killed him all. So that's that same family. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, so then everyone started looking at that picture going, man, did she really just orchestrate that, hoping it would go viral? And Yeah, I think she kind of did. I didn't even know that. And yeah. I, I remember both events, but I didn't know that they were related. Yeah. yeah. So she, she's 
and then yeah and then like you said not long after that she drove the whole family i think yeah she drove the car off a cliff and killed them all yeah crazy all right kevin so where can we buy the book where can we find you where can we find the book yeah so you can go to my website growingupblackinwhite.com or my name kevin hoffman h-o-f-m-a-n-n.com and you'll see there's videos on there of me training there's a bunch of videos on there of the different podcasts and radio shows i've done and then it tells you how to get in touch with me how to get the book i've also started a line which i call diversity wear um and so it's just t-shirts that kind of address the issues of diversity so the favorite shirt i've designed says it's a black shirt with white lettering and it says if you don't see color i must be invisible and then on the back it just says see me ah i like that big part of me is my color so when you say i don't see color what you're telling me is you don't see a large part of me that i hold dear to myself awesome i think everybody should should see color you could you should be proud of of who you are and, and what you are like or because we're black I'm, I'm not no better or worse than somebody that's brown yellow white or whatever but whatever race you are be proud of it you know and it, don't be afraid to say i mean you probably shouldn't say i'm white and proud or black and proud in front of certain people but you know <laughs> But there's nothing wrong with being proud of that. Like, that, right. my best friend is Irish Catholic. Man, Irish people have this very healthy identity with Irish in Ireland. And I'm like, good. that's good. You should. Like, why shouldn't you be proud of where you come from and your heritage? Exactly. All right, Kevin, I want to thank you again so very much for coming on to the show and having this awesome conversation. I appreciate it. You have a good one. All right, you too. Appreciate it, James. Take care. All right, you too. Kevin, I want to thank you again for having this conversation. I think it's very important for everyone to see and understand the different views that we have on various topics such as race. So I thank you for that. And I hope that one day we can all get along. You can find Kevin at KevinHoffman.com. Hoffman is H-O-F-M-A-N-N. Now, I know racism will never end. That's just our reality. I would be interested in hearing how other people experience the world and race or more people that have similar experiences as Kevin. And please, please remember that different does not mean better. I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. We're just different and that's okay. Check out the show notes and more from my conversation with Kevin Hoffman at thejameshannon.com slash two. And don't forget to leave a comment, like, and subscribe. I'll talk to you later.